If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. If you're pulling it up on an electronic device or you've got a paper copy, go ahead and find it there. If you don't have either of those, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it together. We've been working our way through the book of 1 John together for the last uh, several months, and we'll finish it up right before Advent. Uh, but we find ourselves in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 10 this morning that we're going to read together and then consider what John has to say to us from this word. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I told you a few weeks ago I enjoy watching detective shows on television. I'm not sure if they're always accurate. Um, But one of the things that I've noticed is that every time the cops show up on a scene and a crime has been committed at the office or in a home or in a warehouse, wherever it is, on the street side, they always show up. They rope the place off with some yellow tape to keep people from, from... contaminating the evidence that lay there on the ground and they begin to explore the scene like looking for pieces of evidence and so they take the little yellow tents with numbers on them and they place them next to each piece of evidence as they catalog that evidence and as they consider all the evidence together it leads them ultimately to a conclusion right it leads them to some decision about who did it where they did it what they did it with kind of like the game of clue right that's just basically police work right there the game of clue that you play with your kids, right? But it's evidences that leads you to a conclusion, to a reasonable conclusion. And all throughout these five chapters in the epistle of John, the first epistle of John, John is dropping evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence of what it is to know God. How do you know that you know God? John says, let me give you some evidences of it in your life. Let me give you some outworkings of that in your life. And in the same way that building a case as a detective means that there are pieces of evidence that are connected to each other. They're not isolated from each other, right? One builds on the next. So it is true in these evidences that John gives. There's connections between all of these things. And so as we've looked at this text, I don't want you to think, well, I can isolate one of these evidences and just grab a hold of it and claim, yes, I must know God. But there are all these evidences working together in our lives to show us what it means to walk with Him, to know Him, to have fellowship with Him, to live the life that He has infused within us. And so this morning, it's no different. We're going to be taking a look at what it means to know God, to be born of Him, versus being a child of the devil. Now, that's not my language. That's the Bible speaking, okay? It's not popular to draw a line in the sand today and say, right, you can, you can discern, you can say that, 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 that this person is a Christian and this person is not, but that's exactly what John's been doing throughout this book. 
He's been drawing a line. He's been drawing boundaries. He's been making distinctions. He's been giving evidence. And in this text, John says, listen, he's, he's doing more than just inviting his readers to live a holy life. What he's saying is this, here's how you distinguish whether or not your father is God or your father is the devil. Right, that's, again, not my language, that's John's language. That's the Bible speaking for itself. And essentially what he's saying is this, everyone who has been born of God, if you go back into the end of chapter 2 and the early part of chapter 3 that Stanley preached for us last week, that everyone has been born of God. They are right now, in the present, in the process of becoming what they will be. Of becoming in the present of what they will be in the future. He says, in, back, in, back in chapter 3, the early part, he says, listen brothers, what we will be has not yet appeared. But whenever he, he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has that hope of being like Jesus when he comes back is right now purifying himself as Jesus is pure. So you're in the process now of becoming what you will be. And a part of that process of becoming what you will be involves this. It involves the spiritual being that you now have as, a, as, as position in Christ. As one who, who knows God, has been born of God. That spiritual being is someone who's come to faith in Jesus that exists in your, in your heart, is now working itself out into spiritual doing, into new practices in your life. And in fact, what John says in this text is you can't have one without the other. You, you, you cannot have spiritual being without there being evidence of spiritual doing in your life. Now, let me be real clear, because we live in a culture that's been contaminated by legalism and moralism, okay? What John is not saying is that the spiritual doing creates the spiritual being. He's not saying that. That's some, if you do enough stuff, you kind of ascend the ladder to God and God accepts you and God receives you and God gives you favor and God adopts you because you've done really well. That's not how it works. The spiritual doing doesn't create the spiritual being, but the spiritual being of God setting his affection upon us as his children, adopting us into his family. See what love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That God adopted us into his family. So now the spiritual being, identity in Christ, creates a spiritual doing. If you get those two flipped around, it is a deadly situation that you find yourself in. It's called legalism. And yet John does not stop pressing on the fact that if there is this being, there is this identity in Christ, it has an effect, it has doing that fleshes itself out in your life. And he gives us evidence of that here in the text. How do you know if you are a child of God? And this is what he says. It's very simple, but really profound. Listen to what he says. The evidence of paternity in your life is your practice. The evidence of paternity is practice. Right? Well, listen, whenever there's a dispute over the paternity in a particular child's life, Right, they draw blood and, and tissue and they send it off to a lab and the geneticists test it and they're looking for certain DNA markers that are consistent between the child and the father. And as they look for those different DNA markers to match those things up, then they can, with, with, with lots of accuracy, say, listen, this child was begotten by this father because there are genetic markers that exist. And what John says is there are certain behavioral markers that exist in the life of a child who's been begotten of God, someone who has God as their father. Right? There are behavioral markers that exist in that 
child of God's life. Look at how many times John repeats himself. Over the course of, seven verse, of, of 11 verses, John uses the same language seven times. Listen to what he says in 2.29. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 3.4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning. 3.6, the one, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. 3.7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous like Jesus. 3.8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. 3.9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. 3.10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Do you see a pattern? <laughs> Some repetition maybe. I don't know. Right? Seven times in 11 verses, he keeps driving home this point of your practice is the evidence of your paternity, of who you belong to, of who is your father. Now listen, does this mean then that anyone who has come to faith in Jesus, that subsequent to their conversion, following the conversion, they never sin again? No. That is not what John is saying at all. Consider a couple of verses we've already looked at. In 1.8 he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In 1.9 he says, If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. In 1.10 he says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. No, it's not, not that when we come to faith in Jesus that we no longer ever sin. That's not what John is saying at all. In fact, true Christians, listen, hear me clearly this morning, church. True Christians are capable of committing sins. In fact, even gross sins. Even detestable sins, the most devastating behaviors. The reality is that true Christians aren't above anything. Not above anything in your life. Right? Notice John doesn't list a particular group of sins and say, listen, when you do these things, it's evidence that you're out. But whenever you do these things, right, those are kind of in the gray area, so you're probably okay. That's not how he handles it. He doesn't talk about a particular list of sins, saying these cancel you out, and these, man, these are acceptable, these kind of get you in. He's not talking about the practice of particular sins, but he's talking about a particular disposition towards sin in your life. A particular relationship that you have towards sin in your life. And it's not so much about even one particular action as it is about an overall disposition. It's not a singular occurrence, but a sample size. Right? It's not that you have an episode of sin in your life, but that you binge on it. And you look to it for your identity. Any Netflix subscribers in the room this morning? We've got a few, maybe a few of those. No, none of them, I guess. Nobody subscribes to Netflix. I think you're all liars, and so we need to have a different sermon this morning. But um, we, most of us are familiar with Netflix, right? And so you can get on Netflix, and you can find all kinds of content, right? You can find movies. You can find documentaries. You can find uh, all different genres of action and horror and family and comedy. You can find television shows that have been produced over the years, original content as well. Right? And new subscribers to Netflix find themselves in a very dangerous position. Because you can, it's not like watching shows that come out every Monday. Right? right? You, you watch episode one on Monday, then you've got to wait till the next Monday to watch episode two. And then you've got to wait till the next Monday to watch episode three. And then episode four, they come week after week after week. Not so with Netflix. Right, because with Netflix, you've got backlogs that have been cataloged of all these series, all the seasons, and all the episodes. And so you can waste weeks of your life just binging on Netflix episode after episode after episode because you just keep clicking 
right? Next episode, next episode, next episode. That's what John's talking about. He's not saying that true Christians don't have episodes of sin in their life, but true Christians don't binge on sin. They don't find their identity in sin. It doesn't become an habitual, ongoing, unrepentant, without conviction kind of practice. They don't make peace with it. You don't draw up peace treaties with sin and say, I'll give you this much, but I'll keep this much, right? You kind of make peace treaties with it. You don't settle down with it. You don't shack up with it. That's what John is saying. But there is a vigilance and a fight against it. Think about how this works. What John is, what, listen, this is what John is saying. It's not that true Christians have never told a lie after they've come to faith in Christ. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this, is that real believers, those who've been born of God, those who know God, right, they don't live in a web of lies and deceptions upon which they build their identity and deceive others about who they really are and they're comfortable operating that way. They're not, they don't just keep clicking, right? It's not that upon occasions that you might sin in your anger. Anybody ever been angry before and sinned in their anger even after coming to faith in Jesus? Like I'm raising my hand, okay? I'm not exempt from that. But it's leaving behind you this trail of carnage in your wake because constantly and steadily your anger that is boiling under the surface erupts over like a volcano and just creates all kinds of damage around you over and over and over because you keep binging on anger. It's not a choice to make a purchase of a new car. Right, rather than giving the down payment to the church or a nonprofit agency or a mission agency or a missionary on the field, but it's a lifestyle of greed. A lifestyle of greed and selfishness, self-serving pursuits, which you really see nothing wrong with because everybody's getting there, so I gotta get mine. Right? It's it's not struggling with an addiction to pornography, but giving yourself over to the addiction with no repentance or resistance at all in your life. Is there just, you just keep clicking and binging on sin. Right, what, what John says is this, listen, that's the kind of reality that is inconsistent with being somebody who's born of God. Not that there aren't episodes, but you don't binge on it. You don't just keep clicking. But why is that the evidence? Let me give you four reasons, because John gives us four reasons this morning. The first one is this, and that's already on the screen for you. Binging on sin denies the existence of God. Denies the existence of God. Look, look what he says in verse 4. In verse 4, John gives us a snapshot of the nature of sin when he says, it is lawlessness. It is lawlessness, he says. Now listen, when John says it's lawlessness, he's ta talking about breaking the law. He's not talking about, like, there's this law that I broke, or this, this law that I broke, or this law that I broke, or that all the laws that I broke. He's not talking about a violation of the law. John's talking about a negation of the law. In other words, living as if there is no law. That's what lawlessness means. Living as if there is no law. And what that means is this, that I'm accountable to no one other than myself. If there is no objective standard by which human behavior is measured, that I'm not accountable to anyone but me, myself, and I. And John says, listen, that is inconsistent with being born of God. That you're denying this God that you claim to know exists whenever you say, no, no one and nothing stands over me. 
I am autonomous. I am independent. I am free, and I will do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, for however long that I desire to do it. And I'm not accountable to God. John says, you're living as if there is no God. And oftentimes, people who find themselves in this position, they make statements like this whenever they're confronted about sin. They say, well, God knows my heart. Hmm. Where do we go with that one, right? Well, God knows my, like, I'm, I'm, I'm ev- ev- they, they might be evidently, right, grinding against the, the teaching of Scripture, but they will look you in the eye and they will say, but God knows my heart. And they do so in an attempt to justify their sin. Let me see. Listen, what God knows about our hearts is what Jeremiah reveals, that they are wicked and deceitful. Who can understand them? Right? Who can really mine the depths of them? I can't, you can't, only God can. That's what God knows about our hearts. And oftentimes when we make those kinds of statements, we're basically just trying to justify our sin. And and, and, in so doing, we're denying God's existence or at the very least denying His authority over our lives. The second reason John gives here that, that this evidence of paternity is our practice is this, that binging on sin not only denies the existence of God, but it depreciates the finished work of Christ. It depreciates the finished work. Anybody who owns an automobile in the room this morning is familiar with the economical concept of depreciation, right? You can leave church today and you can drive to any dealership in Rockwall and you can walk onto that dealership if they're open or tomorrow or next Saturday, whenever you got time, you can walk on that dealership and you can look at all the nice shiny new cars right? Man, their paint glistens in the sun. Mine just kind of fades in the sun. But it glistens in the sun, right? The new car smell, that leather when you get in, it's just like, (sighs) look at the odometer, there's seven miles on the odometer. I've got 167 right now, and I'm going strong, right? But you, the new, the, you can be enamored by that new car and you can, you can do what, you can negotiate price and you can get in that car and you drive it off with a lot. A month later, if you're no longer satisfied with your purchase, you can bring it back. But there's no way they're going to give you what you paid for that car when you bring it back because that car depreciates the moment you drive it off of the lot. In fact, new cars statistically depreciate 15 to 25% a year for five years. So 60% of that car's value depreciates over the first five years of its lifespan. That's good news, isn't it? We're all excited right now. We're familiar economically with the concept of depreciation. It's the loss of value over time. But listen, there is a spiritual depreciation that at times happens in, in our lives. Where the work of Christ, what He's accomplished for us, the value of that diminishes before our eyes rather than grows. And over the course of time, listen, there's a difference between a depreciating asset and an appreciating one. You know that? A car is a depreciating asset. Homes, if you care for them properly, are appreciating assets. So they gain value over the course of time. And one of the things John is saying to us through the word here is this, is that, the, that for those who binge on sin, there is a depreciating value of the work of Christ before their eyes. It doesn't appreciate like it should over time. Where you grow to love the work of Christ more and more and more in your life. It becomes more valuable to you, not less. 
if you've been born of God, then there's a steady appreciation of it. Now, it may not always be like this. It might be like this, and then it grows a little bit more, and, and as your eyes are focused on other things, but it's, it's growing over the course of time. It's appreciating over time. It becomes more precious to you 30 years after coming to faith in Jesus than it was day one. Remember how precious it was day one for you when you first heard the good news of the gospel? Those of you have been walking with God for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, is it more precious to you today? Those who binge on sin, listen, it depreciates the finished work of Christ in two ways. John says it in the text. First of all, it depreciates the forgiveness of God through Christ. The forgiveness of God through Christ. In verse 5, John says, you know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. In order to take away sins. It harkens back a little bit to John 1, the Gospel of John 1, whenever John the Baptist is there at the river and he sees Jesus coming from afar and Jesus is coming down to the river to be baptized by John and he looks at Jesus and he says, Behold, who? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John says that Jesus left the Father's right hand, that he descended was condescended, came down, was clothed in flesh in order to take away sins. And by using the plural there, sins, and not sin, he's not talking about necessarily the power of sin, but the consequence of sin, the guilt that we bear, the shame that we live with, the estrangement from God that we have, the lack of intimacy with God, that Jesus has come to eradicate the consequences of sin so that he might cleanse us of our guilt, he might pardon us from our iniquity, that we might enjoy intimacy with God and knowledge of him and walk with him. And when we binge on sin, we're depreciating the finished work of his forgiveness. But there's a second way in which we diminish and depreciate the work of Christ in our lives when we binge on sin. And it's that we not only diminish and depreciate his forgiveness but also the victory of God in Christ look at what he says further down in verse 8 he says the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil destroy the works of the devil notice the plural again works because Satan has a multi-pronged attack in our lives doesn't he he doesn't just use one thing he uses many morally in our lives. He tempts us and seduces us to sin, doesn't he? Right? As an angel of light, he makes things appear to be what they are not. And he, t through that, tempts, tempts us and seduces us away from God. Physically, he might afflict us, even as we see in the book of Job. As he afflicts Job with all these these wounds all across his body and at times he afflicts us maybe with disease. Intellectually he twists the truth and entices us towards error. Spiritually he accuses us. You know what that he stands as the great accuser of God's people so that he, he takes things from your past and like a big dredge that goes down to the bottom of the river to pull up all the shells that lay down at the bottom, he dredges out the history of your life and he brings it before you and says, see, see, and he accuses you. 
Morally, he tempts. Physically, he afflicts. Intellectually, he twists. Spiritually, he accuses in our lives. He has a multi-pronged approach. But you know what John says? When Jesus appears, he appears to destroy the works of the devil. That word destroy, it literally means this, to loose. In other words, your hands have been bound, your feet have been tied, and whenever Jesus enters into human history through his sinless life and his substitutionary death and his ascension and resurrection, that what he's done is he's taken those knots, no matter what Boy Scout tied them, right? And he's pulled the string, and he's loosed them so they no longer have you bound, but you're able to live in freedom. And when you binge on sin, you're depreciating the victory of God over the works of the devil. You're saying, that is of little value to me. Are you with me so far? Some of you are like, is it over yet? Third. Third. Practicing sin or binging on sin contradicts the presence of the Spirit. Contradicts the presence of the Spirit. Any of you guys been to the fair this fall? Like this, it's okay to raise your hand, by the way. I just want to let you know that. Anybody been to the fair? It's all right if you went, I promise. Right? What about any time in your life have you ever been to the state fair? There we go. We got a few folks now participating. This is the interactive part of our service this morning, right? But I, I, maybe, you're, maybe you're not like me. I hope you're not like me. But there have been times that I've gone to the state fair. And my kids, like, they love the games in the midway. They want to ride some rides, go by and look at the car shows and look at the petting zoo and pet all the animals and sanitize yourself until there's no end, right? And then you walk by all of the food booths and you can smell the oil just kind of bubbling there, can't you? Everything that you could possibly imagine under the sun dropped in hot oil and fried to a crispin goldy, crispin? crispy golden brown perfection right you got fried oreos you got fried ice cream you got funnel cakes you got corn dogs you got all these things Mmm. just thinking about it makes my mouth salivate just a little bit because i walk down next to maybe you've been there before right where you're like i just want to try a little bit of this oh i've got to try some of this too right how can i pass this up i'm gonna never see this again i'm gonna try this as well and so you just keep trying stuff until after, after like an hour of trying these different fried foods, you're beginning to feel just a little bit sluggish and a little bit tired, right? And like your skin just feels oily, right? Every, your face, your pores, right? You just wipe your face and it's like, oh, this is disgusting. I feel like I've been swimming in a bat of oil. And then as you're walking out towards your car, right, you're just tired and dragging and your stomach is turning and just feels a little bit nauseous, you get home, maybe spend a little bit of time over the porcelain throne, you know, right? because some of that just, it's not settling with you. It doesn't sit well, it disagrees with you. And listen, when we binge on sin, it disagrees with the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It contradicts His presence in our lives. If we can binge on sin without conviction, without the Spirit going, knocking, pressing, convicting John says you may not be a child of God listen to what he says in verse 9 John says no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God now God's seed in verse 9 can be understood in a couple of ways it can be understood as, as his word 
or as his spirit, right? Commentators, conservative commentators, on, on both, they're on both ends of that spectrum, right? Some say it's God's word, some say it's God's spirit. I don't know that we can split hairs, but I tend to believe it's God's spirit as God's spirit takes God, because God's work can fall on our hearts. It can fall on fallow, hardened, unfertile ground, can't it? And until the Holy Spirit reigns and says, live, grow, come to life, that word sits dormant. But as God's seed, His Spirit says, come to life, and you come to life, and you begin to live, you begin to enjoy God, you begin to know God, you begin to walk with God, then God's Spirit cannot settle down with sin in your life. So you cannot continue with a negligent, cavalier, nonchalant approach to sin and immerse yourself in sinful practices and revel in them. To do so is contradictory to having been born of God, having His Word settle in your heart and His Spirit saying, live, Christian, live. It's contradictory. Because these two things, they don't, the Spirit and sin, they don't vacation together. And they don't go down to Bermuda and sit on the beach and in a little chair with an umbrella and order little drinks with umbrellas in them and sip them and talk. Right? The Spirit is driving sin out of our lives, convicting us of sin. They don't settle down together. And then fourth, binging on sin, it marks, John says, the children of the devil. That's maybe the harshest statement of all this morning. Let me see if I can break it down for you, at least to our ears. Let me break it down for you this way. To practice sin while claiming to know God is equivalent to wearing the jersey of one team but actively playing for another. Listen, I played basketball in middle school. I didn't, I didn't play basketball beyond middle school. And there's a reason for that. Didn't have much of a vertical. My jump shot was really not much of one, okay? I could only dribble with my right hand. I had no crossover whatsoever. So my basketball prowess ended in seventh grade, all right? That was done. <laughs> I don't know if any of you can relate, but that was me. But my very first middle school basketball game, we play the first half, and we get down with the first half. We're all on the bench over there. Coach is giving us a little pep talk at halftime. Here's where we made some mistakes in the first half. Here's how we can improve in the second half. We're all getting fired up. You know, we've all put our hands in the middle. I don't remember what our team name was. We, you know, we go out to storm the court in the second half. And we get out onto the court in the second half, and everybody is situated on one side of the court. And I'm looking down at the other side of the court at the goal that we've been scoring on the entire first half, and there is nobody there. And I'm like, I'm standing... Some of you know where this is going. I'm standing at half court, and I'm just going, give me the ball, right? Give me the ball. So they pass it to me, and I make a beeline for that goal that we've been storing on the entire first half, and I'm driving down, and I don't, like, I, I, there, I could hear nothing because I'm just thinking of the chance of glory, people raising me up on their shoulders, right? So I drive down, I lay up the ball into the basket, and then, like, it's like in the movies, right? All of a sudden, the volume comes. Everybody's, no! Because I had no idea that you switched goals at halftime. <laughs> We're supposed to be scoring on the other goal now. And so here I was in my team's jersey, actively scoring goals for the other team. Listen, church. Regardless of what jersey you put on, which team are you playing for? Which team are you scoring for? John says a mark of those whose paternity, who are begotten by the devil, is that they practice sin. They binge on it without conviction of the Spirit, depreciating the work of Christ, denying the existence 
of God. And they just keep scoring and scoring and scoring and scoring in the other team's goal. And John says the reason this is the case is because the devil, he's been doing this from the beginning. It's who he is. And if your paternity is related to him, it's who you are. So these four reasons, John says, this is the, the evidence of your paternity. So what do we do about it? Listen, as we close this morning, I want to give you three things quickly, briefly, but three things. How do you respond to this? Because there are some of us in the room who might be responding in one of two ways, two big ways, right? For some of us, this, this text Right? As you come across this text, it's like it's, it, it's what, what the Spirit's doing in your life is He's using it to awaken you from slumber. Because you might have settled in complacency. And God is pressing to awaken you. For others of us, the Holy Spirit wants to take this text and He wants to alleviate your guilt and shame to drive you back to your advocate that Andrew read about in chapter 2 earlier this morning in our service. Christ the righteous in your place, defending and pleading your cause. So for some of us, God wants to awaken us from our slumber. For some of us, God wants to drive us back to the advocate to assuage our guilt. To let us know that we are free. But regardless of which position you find yourself in this morning, let me talk about three ways that we respond to this moving forward. The first one is this. Is that as we move forward, right, we have to learn to defend ourselves against deception. Defend ourselves against deception. Look at what John says in verse 7. He says, little children. He's so affectionate towards them. Little children, let no one deceive you. See, in his context, there were folks circulating a false teaching that were, that were trying to disconnect the person of Christ from the physical body of Jesus. They were saying this, this, this man Jesus was born and at his baptism when the Spirit descended upon him, the eternal Son of God came to be with him. Before he was crucified, that eternal Son of God left him and he was just a man there dying on the cross. That he wasn't incarnate in his mother's womb and born of the Virgin Mary. That he didn't live a sinless life and die a substitutionary death and be raised from the grave still to have a body in heaven. A physical body in heaven right now. They were denying those realities. And in so doing, they were saying, listen, it doesn't matter how you live because it doesn't matter that his body's still on the grave. What matters is that you have this knowledge that we're going to impart to you, this revelation that we're going to give to you. And John's saying, little children, let no one deceive you. You cannot separate spiritual being from spiritual doing. You can't separate them. Listen, in, in, in the game of football, right? In the game of football, there's three units on the sideline. There's offense, defense, and special teams. Some of you might have watched that yesterday in college football. Some of you may be going home this afternoon to watch it in the NFL. But listen, one of those units, the defensive side of the ball, they have one expressed purpose. You know what that is? To keep the offense from gaining ground. Every blitz package they install, every nickel package they bring onto the field in passing situations, every, every time they bring a safety down in the box to stop the run, right? Everything they're doing is to keep the offense from gaining ground, from advancing the ball to get into their territory and eventually into the end zone. And John's saying, if you've got to defend yourself in that manner to keep 
those who are trying to deceive you from gaining ground in your life, from gaining territory in your life, from allowing those thoughts to infiltrate the way that you think and the way that you live, saying, does it matter what I do with my body so long as God knows my heart? You with me? So if we're going to defend ourselves against deception, here's two things. One, one, you've got to learn to look at your life. You learn to pray the prayer that David prays in the Psalms when he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wickedness in me. Draw it out, God. Draw it out. And if you're someone who has settled into complacency, maybe that's the prayer that you need to pray this morning. That God would draw out any wickedness that's within you. And that you would look at your life. Now listen, it can get real discouraging looking at your life day to day. I don't know about you, but I can get real discouraged looking in the mirror day to day. But you need to look at your life month to month, year to year. And see... Is there an ever-increasing appreciation for the finished work of Christ? Am I more accountable to Him this year than I was last year in areas of my life? Am I yielding more to Him today than I was two years ago? Right? Am I responding more quickly to the conviction of the Holy Spirit now than I did five years ago? Do I see progress and practice of righteousness not always moving up into the right, but am I, am, I, am I growing to some degree? Am I maturing? Am I bearing fruit? Examine your life. See, what most of us are prone to do is we're prone to say, I know God. I walked an aisle and prayed a prayer when I was seven. But there's been no fruit that's been manifested in our lives over the course of the duration of our Christian experience. And John would say, do not be deceived. You've got to look at your life. But second of all, you've got to live in community. See, those of us who think that we can be Lone Ranger Christians, right, and we're just going to kind of get it done, me and Jesus, that's all I need, then why in the world does he give us the church? If all you need is me and Jesus, then why in the world does he say in the book of Hebrews, exhort us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but meet more frequently as you see the day approaching. Or in the book of Hebrews in chapter 3 when he says this, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, sin is so deceptive in our lives. It's so deceptive in our lives. It's so deceptive that sometimes we don't recognize it and others recognize it in us before we recognize it in ourselves. Can I get a witness? Anybody? Been there before? Other people see things in us before we see it in ourselves. And that's why you need the church. One, one of the reasons you need the church. It's one of the reasons you need to be a part of a, a life group. One of the reasons you need to be a part of people in your life who can say, you know what? Who have the courage and compassion to come to you whenever they begin to recognize that an episode of sin is turning into a season of sin in your life. About to release a new one on Netflix. 
right? That episode is turning into a season. And they have the courage and compassion to come to you with truth and grace. That's one of the ways you guard yourself, defend yourself against deception, is by living in community. And finally, finally, you have to let your health form your hungers. Listen, most of us think of it opposite, right? That's why when we get to our middle age, we've got diabetes and congestive heart failure and all kinds of issues because we let our hunger sometimes form our health. All right, my wife yesterday, mm, she was making some pretzel rods and dipping them into almond bark chocolate and then my daughter was there sprinkling little Halloween colored sprinkles on them and she, she was running out of pretzel rods. She's like, what else can I dip? I said, Oreos. <laughs> and so she took a package of Oreos and she began to dip the Oreos. And listen, I had, I, I hate to admit this to you this morning, but I had three of those yesterday. No, I had four over the course of the day. I have to repent, I know. But they're delicious. Yeah, I know. Thank you. Thank you, LaQuandra. I had four of those yesterday, and they were delicious, right? But listen, if I eat like that consistently, if I let my hungers form my health, what will be the shape of my body in a year, two years, three years? You see the documentary of the dude who ate McDonald's every single day, and like kind of where he was at the end of 12 months? Wasn't a pretty picture, because most of us are so accustomed to letting our hungers form our health. And listen, there is, listen, there is a reality that whenever you come to faith in Jesus, you're born of God, that God does begin to awaken new hungers in you and new appetites in you. But at times, there is still a wrestling with the flesh in you that still longer, longs for and lingers over some of those things that you used to do and enjoy. And it's in those moments where we need to learn to let our health form our hungers. That we look at the chocolate Oreos and we say, I cannot, I cannot partake of those because this is going to be the result. I know how it's gonna make me feel. I can't binge on fried food. And that's the difference between food and sin, right? You can eat a few things in moderation in food, but there is no moderation of sin. And we, let our, we need to let our health form our hungers, how we want to feel, who we want to be as we walk with God, form and shape. We need to preach to ourselves. And as a part of that process, listen, church, and I'm done. I know. I'm done. But we need to learn at times to fast from unrighteousness and feast on righteousness. Because righteousness in our lives, it works just like fitness. Listen, I'm not the most fit person in the world, but I try to do my best to take care of my body. I run pretty regularly. I do a little body weight exercises. Uh, just trying to keep, you know, whatever I, whatever I got now from going way downhill really fast now that I'm in my 40s. All right? Because listen, if you're not there yet, brother, it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. And that train is going to collide one day. And you're like, what in the world just happened? But listen. Fitness. Have you ever noticed it's so hard to get off the couch that first time, isn't it? Couch to 5K. Here we go. First, first day, like, oh man, come on, I really got to get up at 5 a.m. The second day, the third day, the second week, the third week, progressively, what happens is that 
fitness begets fitness, doesn't it? Greater levels of fitness produces greater motivation for fitness in your life, which produces greater degrees of fitness in your life, which produces greater motivation for fitness in your life, which produces greater degrees of fitness in your life. There is this cyclical pattern as it feeds itself. And righteousness works the same way. Because when you're getting fit, right, you, you feel better, right? You're more aware, you're more alert, you have more energy. You're like, I like feeling that way. And so I want to continue to feel that way. And righteousness is the same thing. As it fuels you with satisfying the deep hungers of your heart. And as you give yourself to righteousness, sometimes with shaky steps the first time. Like, I've never done this before, but I'm going to give myself to my walk in it. And all of a sudden you're like, it feels good. I feel myself getting healthy. And that greater degrees of righteousness, they produce greater degrees of righteousness because it fuels you with motivation for greater degrees of righteousness. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. That righteousness will provide the deep longings of your heart in a way that sin promises but never delivers. And so you have to learn to let your health form your hungers. Are there some things this morning, church, that you need to begin to fast from this week? Some habits in your life, some practices in your life that you need to say no to as you learn to say yes to the practice of righteousness. This is the evidence John gives. And my hope is that the Holy Spirit would take that and he would begin to press it on your heart and that you would weigh out and ask yourself the question, based on my practice, who is my Father? Let's pray together. Father, we come today. We thank you that your word is so clear and instructive. Thank you that your word is powerful. And Father, that it, it intersects our lives in ways that we don't anticipate at times. And Father, this morning, as we consider what your word has to say to us around the experience of our paternity, of what it means to be your child, what it means to be born of you, God, help us to avoid the error of thinking that if I fast from unrighteousness and I feast on righteousness and I live in community and I examine my life, then I will ascend the stairs to you and you will adopt me, you will accept me, you will shower favor on my life. But God, help us to see that your love for us as your children in the person of your son who was given for us in our sins to adopt us into your family, to put us in a position where your favor is shed upon us, your love is shed abroad in our hearts, you're, we're adopted as your children, we're accepted into your family, that that coming first creates the spiritual doing in our lives. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room this morning. I pray that there will be a growing appreciation of the finished work of your son and his forgiveness and victory in their lives. I pray that they would yield quickly to the conviction of the Holy Spirit whenever they step into error. 
And I pray they'd be more and more, that we would be more and more as a church and as individuals accountable to you for our lives. And I pray for those in the room this morning who may not know you. Who through the very course of this message, you may have awakened in them this realization that though they have had this, though they have put on this jersey by walking an aisle and praying a prayer when they were seven, they have been playing for the other team. They've consistently been scoring in the other basket. They have a depreciation. They don't have an appreciation for the finished work of Christ. They don't respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And thereby they are marked out as children of the devil. I pray you be gracious to save this morning. Help them turn from sin and to trust in your son. And God, may they not leave this place this morning without seeking out someone who can talk to them about doing so. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.